Welcome to In Process, a series of intimate conversations with emerging Stanford artists about setting out on the creative path. And to kick things off, we're going to Hollywood with Deontay Singley, the hardest working independent filmmaker I know, whose tender, heady movies will bring tears to the eyes of anyone who dares to watch. In addition to assisting directors such as Eli Roth and Michael Dougherty, Deontay has built an award-winning body of work focusing on race, sexuality, economic status, and identity. A consummate storyteller, Deontay's take on the entertainment industry will be a delight for anyone paddling in the pools of media and film. Deontay, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Um, I'm so happy to have you here because I think you have um, a wealth of experience uh, and a treasure trove of stories that are going to be um, valuable to our listeners. Um, I want everyone who's listening to know that Deontay is a man who has managed to watch over 300 films in a year. At least, at least. Or is it, is it 400? Yeah, it's usually, it's usually in the 400, 400 range. I don't think I don't think I've I don't think I've been below four hundred for like the last four or five years. Oh my god. You're like <laughs> you're like the Thanos of movie buffs. <laughs> and yet I, and yet I still know so little. It's it's insane. <laughs> I guess it's that thing of the more you know the the more you know that you know nothing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you watch I mean, you've presumably watched a huge amount of Western, the Western canon of films. I mean, how much do you diversify now into other areas of the world? Yeah, I mean, as as of late, I've started to, like, really become invested in international film. Um, I would say that, like, you know, in the last four or five years, I decided to, like, really tackle all of the Western classic films, right, that I had never seen before. All of those films that I'd heard of or wanted to see but didn't, had never seen. I started tackling like full filmographies from my favorite, um, you know, American directors. And I got to this point, I would say about two years ago, where I was like, I think I've seen all of the classics that I wanted to see growing up and never got a chance to. Um, (laughs) What the fuck do I do now? Am I allowed to cuss? (laughs) (laughs) We might have to beat, but you can can cuss if you want. Got you. Well, what the heck do I do now? Gosh darn it. Um, and I realized like, wait, you know, that's such an American way to view the world and cinema and specific to say like, well, I watched all the American movies, so I watched all the movies. Um, and I really started, uh, branching out and watching films from all over the world. Um, and so now I would say like a majority, no, I won't say a majority, uh, but I, I will say a majority of the films on my watch list are all international films. Um, mm. And so anytime I, you know, don't know what I want to watch that day or I'm kind of stuck, I'll, watch, I'll look at my list and I'll put on a film. And so I've been watching a lot of, um, you know, Korean films, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, Chinese films, a lot of mm. uh, South American films, um, random like Scandinavian films <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, who's, who are directed by men and women whose names I can't pronounce. Um, so yeah, I would say like in the last two years, I've really made a concerted effort to like really branch out and not just in terms of an international standpoint either, but also a genre standpoint. I I think my, um, I think my eyes are really open to different genres, different walks of life, different types of filmmaking. And so it's been a pretty good couple of years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And do you also watch a lot of TV? I am not a big TV person. Um, my my partner, she watches more TV than anyone I've ever met in my life. Um, <laughs> I'm what I, I don't I don't usually like to watch shows when they're on. I usually wait for a show to be over. And if people yeah. say if people say that whole show is good, then I'll watch the whole show. Um, but I, there's nothing more than I hate than watching like the first two or three seasons of a show and then having it just start sucking because yeah. I'm yeah. A, I'm a, I'm such a completionist that I feel like I have to finish no matter what, and mm-hmm. that's just a horrible feeling to be watching a show that you don't even like anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I usually wait until a show's over before I watch it, and so that really limits my options in terms of like what I I usually watch. So to answer your question, no, I'm not a big TV person. We got a little burned by uh, Game of Thrones uh, for that reason, huh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think for me, like, you know, there are some things that are such, like, cultural phenomenons that, like, I had to watch Game of Thrones, right? And right. as as bad as that last season was, and people argue that the second to last season was almost as bad. I don't, I don't agree with that. But as bad as that last season was, what I will say is that Game of Thrones gave me a lot of really beautiful memories, a lot of good, a lot of good television. And so... Yeah. Even even though that was one of the worst like finales and final sh- seasons to a show I've ever seen, I do feel like that. It, I don't know if it was bad enough for me not to love the show. Still, I still love that show so much. Totally, yeah. I, I think that's also. I mean, Game of Thrones for me is really fascinating. Um, even though I I never actually watched all of it, um, and I watched it after it was out. Um, it's fascinating because it kind of offers this collective experience, which I feel has been a little lost in filmmaking, at least, or film watching. You know, and I love that we have these shared stories, or a lot of us have these shared stories of, you know, what happened in season three of Game of Thrones and this twist yeah. and that twist. Um, I mean, how do you feel about that as someone who predominantly makes film? in terms of how people are, are consuming and experiencing your stuff? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like, I feel, you know, as filmmaking becomes more democratized, which is for the, for the most part, by and large, a positive thing. Um, I also feel like we, it begins to lose its magic, you know? Um, and I feel like throughout, throughout history, films, films and TV for the most part, but films felt like they were, made by these like almost godly creatures you know these godly companies who you couldn't even get to the past the front gate and you have no idea how they did it and now that and 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 so when movies would come out you know it was like it was like a game of thrones episode it was like everybody rallied around it and that does happen occasionally but i feel like it's been pretty lost um and i i don't know like that's i feel you know, I feel like it's so easy these days for people, for someone to just make a movie and for it to just be released and then never be seen and then be forgotten forever. Um, <laughs> and that kind of like, you know, that does scare me because, you know, growing up when we grew up in the 90s and stuff, like I feel like that was kind of the tail end of of that era where The Matrix would come out and everybody saw it, you know. 
yeah. um, but now with you know streaming and the democratization of, of filmmaking and and you know more and more studios and more it's just there's so many movies now that I feel like we've we've kind of saturated the market and I wish that and sometimes I wish I could have like been born 20 years earlier so that I could have mm-hmm. gotten some movies out in the 90s you know and it would have been such a big deal you know we just missed that wave and it's true I mean that is a major reason why suddenly I got into filmmaking too I think it was because of the magic of these DVD box sets or exactly you know that that you went you went into DVD store as a kid and was just like assailed by all of these magical uh, experiences you could pick up yeah um, man I mean, you would watch that. You would watch the extra, extra features, the documentaries behind <laughs> the scenes, and you think totally. about it. Like, I saw some article on Reddit, and I didn't really read it, so I might, might be butchering it. But from what I could tell, it was about how um, the the original Jurassic Park, right? Um, mm. Every time that it's been re released in theaters, and every time that it gets put on a new streaming service, it automatically jumps to the very top, right? Wow. People, people to this day are hungry for the Jurassic Park movie. This is the first one, right? Yeah. And 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 I've I've been to multiple multiple screenings of it when they re-released it in 3D. I think in 2014 I went. Um, when they released it, uh, it might have been 2013 or something like that. When they released it, um, I, I I saw it play at the Hollywood Bowl with a live orchestra. Like people. Mm-hmm. People are hungry for this old movie. And that's because when that movie came out, everybody dropped their shit and went to go see it, right? Yeah. Imagine like imagine if they announced that they were doing like a fast fast and furious five screening, like which is a great movie. No one is going to care, <laughs> right? They're no. gonna do a, a Transformers three, like Transformers, even Transformers one, like blockbusters have lost their luster and they don't have that mm. timeless kind of feeling to them anymore. Um, and a part of that might just be because the movies are starting to suck a lot more. And a part of that might mm. be because the studios don't know what they're doing. And a part of that might be just because we have so many options. But there was there was a long time in which movies had so much weight and heft behind them. And not just movies, like across the board. Like even look at music, right? Remember you used to go into like Tower Records and you had to buy albums. Remember that? Just, just about. I don't know if you had. I don't know if you had Tower Records. No, we we did have Tower Records. I remember that. Yeah, like I just remember being like my mom being like. You have here's twenty dollars, and go and get yourself an album. And I, you would sit there for six hours trying to figure out. Okay, I can only buy one album. Do I buy this album? Do I buy that <laughs> album? Do I buy this double album? It's twice the music for the same price, but I'm not really into that <laughs> band. And it's just it's just insane because now it's like you have everything. Just just like movies, you have music at your fingertips, and everything loses its luster. So when people release albums now, it's not that big of a deal, you know. Totally. I mean, um, it really it feels like you're at the buffet. Yeah, and everything's exactly. like being reheated a bit. Mm-hmm. Nothing's bad, it's, but <laughs> <laughs> so that's why, like, no matter how bad Game of Thrones got, I'm never gonna forget those those moments it gave me. Where every week we, my friends and I, were dressing up, we were ordering food, we were hanging out, you know. Yeah, we were, you know, it gave me so many amazing kind of like uh, round table memories that I'm never gonna be able to forget. So I'm like, eh, I'll take a bad season. Sure, why not? For sure, for sure. Well, let's maybe um, get into the the process of filmmaking itself. Is this a podcast about filmmaking? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it could easily become one if we could, if we continue. We have got to be careful not to go into the weeds. Uh, <laughs> but um, filmmaking is such a massive 
world and certainly in a, a massive industry. And there are so many points of entry and ways to exist in it. So I think maybe for the listeners, um, maybe a good, good place to start is when someone asks you what you do, what do you say? Yeah, I usually just say I'm a filmmaker. Um, okay. That's, that's pretty much it. And I, I really love the term filmmaker because I feel like it's a really inclusionary term that really mm-hmm. encompasses pretty much anybody that makes film. And mm-hmm. the reason why that's important is because you know as well as I do that, um, that the amount of people that actually go into the production of a film. Mm-hmm. And I was just telling my partner that like, you know, people, unless you work in this industry or have been a filmmaker before, it's impossible to fully understand how many people go into the production of a film. You know, you, you people only see, you know, people assume like, oh, the director, the cameraman, maybe a sound guy and the actors. And it's like, no, there are dozens of people oftentimes who are running around, jumping up and down, grabbing things, holding things, lighting things, taping things, right? Um, and every single person is like so critical to the actual production of this film and to making this film. And so instead of like saying I'm a director or I'm specifically a writer, I just like to call myself a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of like the actual practicality of what I of like, how I answer that question, um, you know, I, it's hard because, you know, I haven't, I'm not fully where I want to be in terms of like sustaining myself as a filmmaker. And so I feel like a fraud calling myself a director or a filmmaker. But at the end of the day, I spend a majority of my time writing right, and editing and going through the, 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 the rinse and repeat cycle of, of creating films. And so um, I usually just say, like, yeah, I'm a filmmaker and I'm a director. Um, and, you know, I'm working on a couple short films. I'm writing a couple features. I'm shooting a feature as we speak. Like, and mm-hmm. usually, usually that just suffices, you know. <laughs> People go, oh, that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, and, and they don't see <laughs> Can me I buy like you a the, drink. <laughs> exactly, and they don't see me like crying behind, you know, internally. So, um, yeah. What, yeah. What do you like? What do you say when people come up to you? Like, what do you say? I think filmmaker, for the same reasons as you give, um, feels accurate. I I also do a lot of video and film that isn't just for the cinema. Yeah, um, and there are so many ways that that video has expanded now um, yeah. film ha- has expanded like music videos are pretty much cinematic productions now um yeah. video installation is something that i'm really interested in um so yeah filmmaker i think is good yeah it's also it's also funny because like when when, when someone says like what do you do when i say i'm a director their first question is always like what have you directed right and as if, like, I directed Transformers 3 or Fast, Fast and the Furious, right? <laughs> and so what I realized is, like, when you say filmmaker, like I, like I just mentioned, people really have literally no idea what the positions and jobs are <laughs> on a film set. So when you say filmmaker, it's so vague that they're like, hmm, interesting, okay. And they don't ask you any further, any follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also, it conveys a certain way of life, too. Yeah. You know, director is such a, it's a role and it has a certain set of skills, but filmmaker, yeah. I mean, filmmaking is um, really a dedication yeah. to this medium. Um, yeah. But it, perhaps for people who don't know exactly what a director does, what do you do on set? Ooh, man, I don't even sure I know. I'm not even sure I know. Um <laughs> So basically, as a director, um, you are essentially like the head creative voice in charge of a film from basically its inception or from a script script stage all the way until 
um, it's completely finished. Um, and so what that means is that you, usually in conjunction with your producer or producers, are in charge of bringing in, um, bringing in, you know, individual personnel that can execute execute the vision the way you want it to be executed. Um, so, for example, finding a cinematographer that can kind of translate what you're seeing in your head and onto screen, bringing in a composer who you feel like can capture the musicality and the tone of what you're going for. And so essentially what I'm getting at, what I'm trying to say is that the director's job is essentially assemble a team of incredibly talented people um, mm. to kind of like uh, to kind of come together and coalesce into one like mega film team. Um, and then once they've done their individual best and they've done the best work that they can do and you trust them in doing that work, you kind of put all of their work together and then you get all of the credit. <laughs> so that's essentially right. what I do is I rely on people to, to like, I, I don't have an area of expertise, <laughs> and <laughs> but I rely on people who have areas of expertise to do their best work and then I combine their work and call it a Deontay Singley film. So... Um, <laughs> That's basically what my job is. Um, but yeah, but but more than that, like obviously like trying to act, you know, like everything that you do, um, you know, you're trying to, whether it be like a really simple scene or a really complex film, which you're trying to like tell a really compelling narrative story. Um, and, you know, my job is to eventually find all the people, find the media, find anything that can support that vision and make that story stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And, and and allow people to execute it and then and then put it out there. Well, that's a very generous description of your role and you're certainly um, far more talented than, than that, I would say. Um, maybe let's drill a little deeper into the nuts and bolts of this. Let's yeah. say you're making um, a short drama film mm-hmm. uh, and it's the first day on set. What does your day look like? Yeah, sure. So usually at this point, um, we've hopefully, you know, done a, done a major location scout. So we know exactly where we're filming. Right. Um, mm. And I brought in my production design team in advance so they know exactly what the space looks like and how we're going to dress it. And so usually and when I say dress it, I mean, like decorate it for the for the film purpose, for the purpose of filming it. Um, and so usually the very first thing I do is, you know, crew gets there super early before any of the actors do. And basically, I, I talk to my production design team and tell them exactly how to decorate it. And, and then I talk to my camera department, which is my cinematographer and all the people that work with my cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And I discuss with them basically the plan for the day, the very first shot we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to get. And just making sure that that very first shot has lighting and then also making sure that we have all the lights necessary to, to shoot the rest of the day. Um mm-hmm. And then usually um, um, around that time, you know, I'll have a couple hours later, we'll have the actors come in. And at this point, you know, the first thing you want to do is just talk to them, uh, make sure they feel comfortable, make sure they feel like they've, they've had some good time to rehearse the lines. Mm-hmm. Then you want to get them into hair and makeup and so uh, so they can get their, you know, makeup on and, and get groomed and get their costumes. You want to make sure that the sound mixer puts a microphone on them. And then you want to walk through the day with them and you want to, you want to show them like what, you know, what, what we're going to be shooting, the order in which we're going to be shooting it in. Um, and the whole thing is, if you can notice, like what I'm, what I'm describing is essentially that on a film set, you have a bunch of, you have these kind of subsets of people, right? You have the people that are in charge of hair and makeup, people that are in charge of the camera, people that are in charge of sound, people that are in charge of production design. Mm-hmm. And on, 
you know, on a day-to-day basis, especially that very first day as a filmmaker, as a director, your job is essentially to check in with each kind of subset, each group. Each group usually has a department head, a person that's in charge of that whole department. And you want to make sure that everyone's on the same page, that you're building a really positive and, and, and loving rapport with each group so that you can, you know, talk to them and communicate with them effectively throughout the day. And you want to make sure that everyone knows exactly not just what we're doing the whole day, but what are we actually doing next? Like what needs to be done right now for the next shot? Mm -hmm. Um, and you just do that over and over and over again for every single scene. And you're just constantly checking in with people, constantly making sure people know what's going on. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's basically like what the first day is. And, and as you know, uh, well, you know, when you're shooting these, these are not short days, right? Like, you know, they're probably (laughs) anywhere from 10 to 14 hour days. And we both have probably had longer than that. Um, and so, you know, it can be exhausting, it can be tiring. And so a big part of our job as well is to, to, to be like the cheerleader, the cheerleader for, the, for the whole team and to advocate for our film and to make sure people's energies are up, make sure people are excited. Um, because, you know, usually when as a director, right, you're directing something that is your own idea that you've had in your head for a long time. And let's be honest, like no one cares about this film as much as you do. Um <laughs> Like no one really cares. People, people. A lot of times, people are just showing up, to, you know, for the work and for the for the good times. But no one actually cares about the nitty gritty details of the story like you do. Totally. So a big, <laughs> yeah. So a big part of your job, especially early on, is to get people, your crew members, excited and invested in the actual film and story. Because if people are invested in the actual story, then that will lead them to do much better work, and that will lead them to have a, a lot more energy. Um, because they're going to they're gonna be invested in the final product. And when people are invested in your film almost as much as you are, then that, that, that makes the entire process so easy, so flawless. Um, and so that's a big part of our job as well, is like trying to get people to, you know, it's like Inception, and like trying to get people to feel like this movie was their idea and that it was their movie, <laughs> so that they can yeah. be excited about it like you are. <laughs> no, that is um, such an excellent roadmap of um how to direct and i feel like um i learned a lot just listening to that myself (laughs) um and so true and also such a healthy version of directing because i mean for so much of filmmaking history there have been these massive ego directors who behave more like you know some would say visionaries others would say spoiled children at certain points if something doesn't go their way. And I think it's, I, I find that a really compelling um, version of what directing could be this, this cheerleader, this positive um, like center of, of the creative process. I feel like for me, I feel like for me specifically as it pertains to that, like I, you know, I've worked with a variety of different directors. I've seen different directing styles. I think for me personally, the two things that are most important to always keep in mind is that one, like we're just doing this to have fun, right? Like this is being on set and, and also writing and, and editing. It's like the most fun thing I could ever imagine. Um, and so like never lose sight of the fact that this is just like fun, right? You got to be doing this with the people that you love and you have to be comfortable. Um, and once it feels like a business transaction, then it's like, all right, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is that like, you know, I, I'm not going to not say I'm a visionary because I feel like I do have really interesting and specific ideas that I like to execute. Mm. But at the same time, it's knowing like that I'm not precious about any of this, you know, like I'm really not 
I, I, I don't think that I'm, you know, the next, you know, Spielberg or Shakespeare or Mark Twain or, you know, you know, for me, it's like I, I'm just a dude from L.A. who occasionally has one or two ideas that, that I like. And so <laughs> for me, it's like, I, you know, if I'm on set or I have an idea and someone tells me that's not a good idea or you should change that or you need to reframe the way the shot is like. I know I, I'm not again. I'm not precious about any of these ideas. So if you have a better idea, then that's the one we're going with. And I have no problem giving you credit. I have no problem, um, tell, you know, telling you that like, wow, yep, you are you have a better idea than I do. Um, and I think that gets that gets lost. And I know why it gets lost because um, this industry, especially specifically in Hollywood, it's it's freaking hard, man. It beats you up. And mm-hmm. if you don't have if you don't pull up a wall around you, and if you don't if you don't maintain distance and and if you don't stroke your ego and and make sure that you feel like you are confident in your ability this hollywood will just beat you down so fast and it will just it will rip you apart man and uh and you know i haven't had too much experience directing in hollywood so who knows i might get i might get ripped apart and and beat down um Mm -hmm. but generally like i just feel like you know a lot of directors that i see who are big um you know, a lot, oftentimes they, they, you know, they are not having fun. They're not doing this with the people they love and they can't, they can't get rid of their ego. And so those are the two things that I've always kind of conscious of as I'm directing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, you make a lot of uh, what could, I guess could be accurately described as re- independent film. Like it's not within industry at all. It's, yeah. it's crowdfunded and stuff. Um, I don't want to jump ahead too soon, but um, what's your, I mean, what's your ethos to making film that way? Why haven't you gone down more of an industry route? Um, It's a very, there's a very blunt answer and it's because I have no idea how. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't really know how to, to, you know, really do anything in this industry (laughs) and i've been working here in la for many years now and i've met you know i I just i literally don't know how people make it i have no idea um and i don't know how i would make it and so for me um all i'm doing is like i can only control what i can control you know and so i can only make films the way that i know how to make films and the way i like to make films um and obviously my films are independent, so they're going to have that independent spirit. Um, but yeah, like, I don't really know, you know, like I was just talking to my partner about the, like, who are the gatekeepers of Hollywood. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and like, I have no idea who they are. I don't know what I would do if, or when I get to that gate, like who, you know, I don't know who I would be, who, how I would behave. Um, and I just don't know. And I think that's the hard part is like, you literally just don't know until you know. You know, you have no idea what's going to be the thing that propels you. You have no idea what's going to get people's attention. You, you know, you're going to try so hard making something that you, you're sure is going to get Hollywood's, you know, affection. And then no one ever watches it. And then you make some 20-second dumb video that everybody loves, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you just don't know, man. You just don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think this is true for a lot of the arts that, as a as a young emerging artist, you are putting in I don't know three or four times as much effort as as people who are older than you who are you ha- who are now established who have a network, and it often seems like it's for nothing. Like you're 
you're just making passion project after passion project yeah. and there's no momentum that builds, but it does, it does seem at some point that if you stick it out long enough, something will strike. Hopefully there'll be some yeah. connection or some, some other friend who makes it, who bring, brings you along with them. Yeah, I mean that is that is the optimistic view, and that's that's what I'm clinging on to. But at the same time, like I do, I've met so many, so many, so many individuals who who are getting up there, getting up there, and have had that same thought process and haven't made it. And I think that's like, I think for me, you know, people would tell you like, you know, you know, um, you know, if you wait long enough, you'll get it, and if you work hard enough, you'll get it. And I think for me. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways that's a really unhealthy way to think about it in many ways. Mm -hmm. Like I think you have to live this life knowing that there's a strong chance you're not going to make it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and people who tell you that I never doubted myself, I never doubted, like that's not true. Um, <laughs> that's definitely not true. Like I have doubt every single day. Um, but I think for me, like instead of instead of like blindly saying like, oh, if I work hard enough or if I stay in this long enough, I'm going to make it. Like no, that's not my my mindset. My mindset is that, um, I've never loved anything as much as I love filmmaking, um, except maybe my partner. She's listening to this, and so for <laughs> me, except, so for me, it's like I don't have another really. I don't have another choice. Really, like this is all I really can do at this point. Um, and so for me, it's like I'm hoping that you know something will happen. Something will happen. But if but there's a there's a chance it might not, and like that's just the reality of it. But that's not going to deter me. You know. Um, that's not going to make me feel like I, I can't, I'm not going to continue making films. Like nothing's going to stop me. If I haven't been stopped at this point, like I, I can't really t see what is going to stop me. Um, so that's kind of like my, my mindset as I continue to direct. I think it's also something that the process of filmmaking itself, like <laughs> making a film is so difficult. Yeah. Uh, and there's so many points along the way where it can fail and often does go wrong. Um, yeah. It kind of teaches you this sort of almost zen-like acceptance of um, of th things not going to plan. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I mean, <laughs> we we built each other's sets countless times, so we I know we both have intimate intimate knowledge with things going wrong. <laughs> but I think that's not, that's another thing that like I really pride myself on, and I think directors in general, you have to be good at just letting things slide, just like. You know, when you're when when you're faced with a challenge or an issue, you just have to say like, okay, uh, that's not ideal, but let's just fix it. How do we fix it really quickly? You know, um, because that's that's like the number one thing that everything is constantly going wrong. And so if you actually get deterred or, or upset every time something you lose location or you lose money or whatever it may be, like you're actually never going to make this film. You know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm interested that. Do you have strategies that you use when things do go wrong? Uh, you mean like uh, like emotional like strategies to calm myself down? Emotional strategies and also like what's your process for fixing the problem? Yeah, I mean honestly, like um, the the most important thing that I found is that like you you can't replace a good producer, right? Like that you mm. know for so long in both of our careers we were producing our own work, you know. Yeah. And when you're producing as a director, you're not directing, you're producing, you know? Um, <laughs> and I think having a good producer who doesn't get frazzled was like the most life-changing thing I've ever experienced. 
Um, but on top of that, like, yeah, like there's, you know, people when, when things are going well and everyone's having fun on set, right? No one's looking at you, the director, everyone's in their own head. But when things go wrong and things go bad, you're the first person they look at, right? And they're like, <laughs> what are you going to do? How are you fixing this? Right. Um, and I think like, again, it comes back to realizing that like we're on a movie set, you know, like this is, this is fun. This is amazing. This is like incredible. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so when you approach things from a, from a place of like enthusiasm and graciousness and appreciation rather than a place of fear, um, things get accomplished quickly and easily and effectively. But when you're, when you're afraid and, and you're reacting like, you know, like, you know, how do people react when they're afraid? They react with anger, with, 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 um, sadness, with, you know, obviously with fear. Um, and you know, they, they, you know, you, 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 you have these extreme reactions, you, you recoil, you, you know, you do all these things that aren't, uh, that, that are kind of like not natural to who you actually are as a person, right? They're like these extreme emotional reactions. And so for me, I'm always just keeping, like keeping aware that I'm blessed to be on the set with people that I really love and I'm happy to be working with. And, and so like anything that goes wrong, like it's just one bad thing in a sea of beauty and like, we'll just, we'll just handle it really quickly and then get right back to the beauty, you know? Mm. And then, and then obviously it's much easier said than done when you have a producer because then you can look at that producer and be like, go do that thing for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stay in my sea of yeah. beauty. <laughs> you and then can they take have out to, the shocks. Yes. And then they have to be the ones that are stressed out and, and all that stuff. <laughs> God bless producers. Seriously. They are incredible yeah. people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So much truth in that. Um, really valuable stuff to to hear um I, I think it's clear that what you do as a director or as a filmmaker is <laughs> a lot there's like so many roles that um you have to perform when you're making a movie how did you start out acquiring all of these skills huh um so even though i was raised in la i didn't know I was I didn't know anybody that made films. I was really removed from that world from a behind the camera standpoint, um, and so I didn't even really know that like people could just make films. Um, I really didn't know that. Um, and then when I got to college, my freshman year, and started experimenting and seeing people create shorts, I realized like, oh, anybody can really do this. Um, but you know, I didn't really know like what how to do it right. So like. Um, you know, for example, like I wanted to write my own story so I could direct. And so I just looked up like a screen, a, a script on online and started like, re, you know, and then started typing it in word. And I was like, how do they format this? And having no <laughs> idea that there's like full programs dedicated to writing scripts. Right. Um, <laughs> or even like editing, like I was like, Oh, I want to edit. And so I would edit an iMovie or the, the PC editor. I forget what it's called. Um, not realizing that, like, no, you can actually, like, edit this intensely, right? Like, you can actually achieve the effects that you're looking for in, a, in, a, in an actual editing software. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's all these things that, like, I kind of had to teach myself slowly um, and incorrectly, um, you know, using YouTube University and just, like, you know, images and things I could find online. Um, and then slowly had to realize, and sometimes in, in, sometimes in a very embarrassing way, like, how to actually do the things I wanted to do. 
Um, mm. and, and, but you, you, it just starts with going out there and doing it, right? Like you have to just go out there and do it. I'll never forget. I, I, I the very first like short film I, I with like a real narrative, um, like a real narrative that I wanted to shoot. I had my friend, uh, I had my friend Casey, you know, Casey from college. Yeah. yeah. Um, to act in it and Casey was at that time had written like a bunch of screenplays and I went up to him and I said hey man like I want you to read my script so you can be in it and he read it and it was like <laughs> it was like a word document with like comic sans <laughs> as the font and he was like he was like what the hell is this dude and I was like it's my script he was like the fuck did you write this on and I was like I don't know word and he was like dude what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> and he was he was like very he was joking he was very like kind and loving and he, he kind of gave me some resources but I, I was so embarrassed because I was like I don't know like I, I just wanted to write and I didn't I yeah. didn't know how to but you have to kind of go through those initial stages and to like to grow and to become a better a better artist um, and so it all kind of happened at once like when I was in college I just knew I wanted to make things I wanted to make movies I had no idea how and I really didn't know many people that had any idea how so I had to learn how to write. I had to grab whatever camera I could use and shoot whatever footage I could. And that's how I learned how to shoot. And then I had to edit the footage and, you know, so I could release it. And so that's how I learned how to edit. Um, mm-hmm. And and so you just got it's like trial and error, basically, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of things about the filmmaking process, um, very key things about the filmmaking process that I still don't understand. Like I could not, I could not tell you how to sound mix uh, in post. You know, I could not tell you how to do a, a lot of a lot of what you would consider my general workflow on my films. Um, and I wish I did. But I say all that to say that, like, a lot of the stuff that I'm hiring other people to do, I, I, I know how to do. I'm just not as good as it is them. But I, in order to become a filmmaker, I force myself to learn them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I I think it's a really important part of directing to you that you you have you're in touch at least with all of the areas that you have a personal connection to to it. Um, yeah, yeah, and like you know, like for example, I'm really trying to branch out and start directing films that I I didn't write, right? Mm. Um, and <clears throat> and what I've noticed is that um, all the years that I've spent writing. It's enabled me to give notes to my writers in a very specific and very helpful way mm. that would have other that otherwise would not be um, you know otherwise would not be good good advice if I didn't know how to write myself or you know I spent my childhood acting so when I'm talking to actors on set like I really I have a really personal connection to the performance and to what they're doing and I know how to exactly explain to them um, what I'm looking for in the performance you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with like editing, you know, like I, I've, I've edited so many different things in my life that when I'm working with an editor, um, you know, there's a shorthand that I can use and a very specific, um, notes that I can provide about how I want this edited that I think someone who has never edited before can't really provide. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I've got to say, I've always, um, admired and at the start, I think I was really envious of your ability to, to speak with actors and to kind of get under their skin uh, in a really mm. good way. Um, I think it, it, it shows, it really shows if you've done the actual thing that you're trying to direct. Yeah. Um, pe- people respond to it for sure. Thank you for being envious. That makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. All, all that talk, all that talk about ego and lack of ego, but I need all of the admiration I could get. So thank you. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe um, I, I, this is a question that I certainly have struggled with and a lot of filmmakers uh, who are young and emerging, um, I, I think it's a loop playing in their mind. Should I go to film school? Mm. Um, and I think you, you have you have some interesting things to say about that. What do you think the the role of film school can play if you can pick up all of these skills by yourself? Yeah, um, I think for me, I, you know, I had the option to go into film school. I got into film school, film school I really loved, and I was so close to going. I had put down my deposit and everything, um, and I ended up not going because it the tuition was incredibly expensive. Um, mm. And I thought to myself, I could go to this film school for two or three years, and I could spend, you know, 60 grand a year, um, or I could... Um, work a job, you know, make 60 grand a year or something like that and still make the same amount of short films, right? Because mm. in film school, you also have, not only are you paying for tuition, but you also have to fundraise for your own films, which is mind-blowing to me. Um, and so it was like, I can either spend 60 grand to make a film, essentially, or I can make 60 grand and then make a film, Um and so for me, the choice was obvious, and I decided not to go to film school. And I do not regret it at all, um, because I find myself operating in circles and moving in spaces with people who have spent many years in film school and who are exactly where I'm at, right? Um, mm. But what I will say, um, and th the thing that I do think about relatively often, is the community that you get in a film school situation, in a film school environment, because... When you talk to someone that go, has gone to USC, they know everybody at USC, <laughs> right? Um, both like, you know, people who are their year, people that are maybe a year or two above them, people that are a year or two below them. But they also have access to so many alumni and so many events and situations with other people, right? Mm. Um, and I found that I think one of the lowlights of my career in LA since we graduated from college has been like my inability to really in any like deep meaningful way find my filmmaking team you know yeah um, I have I have people you know I have a lot of filmmaking friends that live all over the world including one in Berlin um, but I don't necessarily feel like I have a very specific entrenched crew in LA that I can talk to rely on um, that are all directing all writing you know like um, I feel like, you know, I feel like I haven't been completely surrounded by people that inspire me since I've graduated from college. Um, yeah. And that's and that's been kind of hard and that's been kind of rough. Um, and, and I feel like film school kind of, if you do it right, can provide you with that. It can provide you with people who are doing what you're doing, who are as passionate as you are, who love what you love, and who are in the same city as you're in. So you can be, so you're constantly surrounded by people who are just grinding and, and doing and putting in that work, you know? And even like I, I like I have friends that might listen to this um, who who are creatives. Not to not to sell them short at all. But what I mean is like 
you know, I have friends, a lot of friends that are actors or who are, you know, writers, but, but I don't really have a lot of friends that are like directors and who are like necessarily as hungry as I am, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I have a lot of them, but they're like separate, you know, they're, I, I, I have one-on-one -on -one relationships with them. And I think what I'm looking for is like kind of a, like a coalition of people that, you know, want to make movies like me and who are making movies like me. I hear you. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's, the same situation for me i i have what i do have is a circle of very talented friends each within their own um their own medium mm -hmm. like you i guess um and a lot of them happen to be in berlin where i am which is great um and if, i guess i guess the the advantage of that is what well, the the feature is of that is that you can do a lot of experimental films or like films yeah. that are honing in on sound or dance or whatever. Um, but it's true. It's that ideal of the film collective uh, is so rare. Mm. It's so difficult to find outside of film school. Um, yeah. But then, you know, you also don't have a massive student loan to pay off. <laughs> from <it>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, man. I mean, I'm also interested because we talked a lot about Hollywood and LA and obviously it's, it's the center of filmmaking in America. Um, in the world, in the world. In, well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, Bollywood's pretty big, man. Yeah, Bollywood is huge. You can't lie about that. <laughs> um, but I'm interested. How do you think LA's shaped your filmmaking? Huh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's um, you know nothing. Nothing is actually shot in, in Los Angeles anymore, right? No, there are very few movies and TV shows that are actually shooting in Los Angeles, and the reason for that is because Los Angeles is incredibly expensive—not just to live in, but to shoot, to to, to actually make movies in. Um, and so I do think in many ways it's, it's made me more of an indie director than ever because I've had to figure out how to balance budgets properly, how to steal shots, how to, sh how to shoot in LA in places that me either I wasn't allowed to shoot in or, or have to find places that were cheap to shoot in. Um, so I feel like it has honed my skills in that way. Um, other than that, I'm not really sure, honestly, like I, 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 I mean, I'm an L.A. kid, right? So my stories have always been, um, in one way or another, like, about L.A. or centered about centered around something that I've experienced in L.A. Um, and so there's that. Um, but honestly, like, for the most part, I don't, I'm not really sure it has, um, has done that much to, like, affect the way that I actually go about writing and producing my shorts. Like, I feel like if I lived in any other city or state, um, I would probably be doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um I feel like maybe more what it is is like I'm an LA kid, like I'm I'm an LA man, um, and I think most people that meet me when I tell them tell them that I'm from LA that that makes sense to them. They go, oh yeah, you look like someone from LA, um, and so I think more than anything, it's probably just the energy that I personally carry, and like the type of the type of filmmaker filmmaker I am, and the type of relaxed style I have, but also like the um, I also have like some you know. I'll just say I have a lot of LA tendencies as a human being. Um, <laughs> so I think maybe, I think maybe like it, 
it affects my filmmaking on a subconscious level more than I realize. But on a conscious level, um, in terms of the actual artistry, I'm not sure it really it really has an effect. Mm-hmm. Why do you feel like do you feel like Berlin or or London, I should say London or England has had like a, a a major effect on you as a filmmaker? I really do. I think about this question a lot because I really think that your the choice of where you land as a young artist can be quite important in terms mm. of the the context that you're making stuff in, the opportunities that surround you, even just like the style of art that is prevalent. And I I'm 100% think that my film has been my style of filmmaking has been really shaped by Berlin. And I think you uh, you can probably you could probably attest to that. Um yeah, I mean seen... I've never been I've never been to Berlin, but I I have seen how your work has shifted for sure. Exactly. Um but yeah, I, and I also the UK thing, I mean I similar to you, I, I guess it'd be a little generalizing to say that there is one type of UK movie or experience, but yeah. um I know what you mean. I think there is like a UK soul to yeah. how I look at human emotions, yeah. I guess. That is a that is a very interesting question and that I'm kind of embarrassed to admit I've never actually thought about. Mm. Um, you know, I li- I've I grew up in LA, so I live in LA. I'm an LA kid, so I live in LA and movies this is the movie capital of the world. So I live in LA. Um, but I actually, I don't think I've ever actually sat down to think to, like to myself, like what, how has this city actually molded um, my, my experience as a filmmaker? Um, you know, like a lot of what, like a lot of, you know, like a lot of the experiences that I had growing up, um, I won't say are like that are specific to LA, but they happened in LA. And so, that's kind of like just the vibe I have, you know, that's kind of like, so the, so the stories mm-hmm. that I'm telling that are inspired by my life, um, again, aren't specifically about LA, but I guess like I really should investigate how, you know, how, where LA lies in the minutia of my movies and like how my movies, whether I know it or not, are about LA. It's a really interesting point. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe let's talk a little bit more about your films and your style um, because if you see a film by Diante, um, there's a real voice um, and approach to telling stories that j- you just it shouts out from all, all of your work. Um, I feel that you are fascinated by the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Uh, that was actually the name of one of my movies. <laughs> I thought it was. I had a, I had a, a feeling. Yeah, the story, stories we tell ourselves, which is the last film I made in college. And funny enough, I'm actually working right now on like a, a anthology TV show that I've been writing, which is like an adaptation of that movie. So, shout out to that. Shout out to that, Jim. I can't believe you you unconsciously quoted the name of my film. <laughs> Why do you think you're you're drawn to that theme? Man, I don't know. I think like, I think, um, I don't know. I, 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 the films that, you know, I love all movies. There's not a single genre. Well, that might not be fully true, but most genres, most, most types of movies, I'm all ears. Like I watch anything. And, but I think the ones, if you see, if you look at like my greatest of all time, you'll see that the movies that resonate with me the most are the ones that like really leave me feeling emotionally raw. Hmm. Um, 
and really leave me feeling like emotionally vulnerable. Um, and I think that's because, um, for me personally, um, not at all trying to play a victim because I lived a really beautiful life, but I, I've experienced a lot of really wild things mm. growing up, and I don't think I realized how wild they were until I got older. Um, and that's because I spent so much of my childhood bottling emotions, right? Compart- com- you know, compartmentalizing like you know all these situations. Something bad would happen, I would throw it in the back of my head. Something somebody would say something to me, and I would um, you know I would just bottle it, bottle it deep down, and, and just forget mm-hmm. about it. Um, and and I realized um, watching some of my favorite movies that these films kind of gave me, especially when you watch them in the cinema in the movie theater, they gave me the option to release my emotions and to really, really just like let it all out without Mm. fear of being judged or without any real context. Um, And I think that's what drew me to film is it allowed me to like really tackle these really intense, complicated emotions that I was feeling. I mean, situations that I was feeling, right? Um, Like, for example, um, you know, as you know, but most listeners probably don't, I, I grew up without a father. Um, Mm -hmm. and my whole life, I just said, oh, well, I have a single mom. Like, I just don't have a dad. That's, that's fine. That's just how my life was. And when, and it wasn't until I got older and started writing scripts that I realized like that kind of messed me up a little bit, you know? Um, and like how, how much, you know, like how much I wanted to feel wanted and how much I didn't feel wanted. Um, because mm-hmm. I was just left, you know? And so there's all these things that, like, when I started exploring them in film or watching them in films, um, I felt like I could actually emotionally release myself. And so now what I've been dedicated to essentially doing is, like, telling stories that um, that are just, like, universal, right? These, like, highly mm-hmm. universal human stories about, you know, about, you, about love, about loss, about, uh, you know, about... Uh, finding yourself or losing yourself and these highly emotional stories, sometimes melodramatic, um, that like for me are really, are really like keys to like accessing, accessing your emotion and letting it all out. Um, Mm. and so, yeah, like that's, I know a lot of people find these type of stories boring, but like the stories that I love the most, the ones where two people are just in a room having a tough, uh, conversation and like where that can go, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you're writing those scenes and those stories, are you drawing from personal experience or are you imagining hypothetical situations that are kind of analogs of your life? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, I think, a little bit of both. Um, I think, I think like, no matter what, I'm always drawing back to a personal experience. But what it comes down to is like, am I writing something that I actually experienced or am I writing something that I have not experienced? Because like, you know, it's just, it's a really funny way. It's really funny how emotions work and how emotions are triggered within the human psyche. You know, Mm -hmm. um, like for example, I'm writing, you know, I was writing this film right now about a man that lost his mother. Right. And I thank God have never lost my mother. My mom is still alive and doing well. Um, but I have lost best friends. Um, I have lost family members, and I do know what it feels like to lose someone that you really, really love. And so, you know, it's a combination. Like, so when I'm writing these scenes, it's a, it's like I'm combining my intense love for, for my mother and my family, right, with the true despair that I felt when I lost my loved ones. 
and then mm-hmm. kind of combining them into this hypothetical scene that has not happened to me, but is based on lived experience. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty much that's pretty much the recipe for every scene I've ever written in one way or another. I think I ask because I sometimes feel trapped by this question of personal experience and, and mm. being authentic about uh, what you're writing. Yeah. Um, not just from the perspective of am I allowed to write this person? Am I allowed to write this identity? But also from am I writing something that I've seen and I want to imitate? You know, like there's a certain amount of rehashing that I think you have to get through or get over yeah. as a as a filmmaker. Well, I think I think um, you know I do think that there are times and situations in where you know, it probably is wise for you to say, you know what, this isn't my story, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's hard because people always say, you know, you have to, you know, you should only write stories that you know, you know, especially in 2020, that's like the, that's like the main narrative, right? Like, why are you telling <laughs> other people's stories? Yeah. And a part of me is like, you know, as, a, as an artist, like, I don't owe anything to anybody, so I should be able to make whatever the hell I want, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think like, you have to really recognize um, that, you know, like you have to check your own privilege, right? Like I'll, I'll give you an example. I was recently um, directed, going to direct this short film and it was dealing with these really, really heavy themes that I, um, that I actually knew nothing about, right? Mm. Um, and we had gone pretty far into the, the development phase and I didn't really think about like how I could potentially be hurting a specific community and then I had to have this moment where I spoke to people who are from that community and they looked at me and they said like, this is really harmful. Right. Mm. And I had to have this moment where I had to like really check my privilege and say like, wait, 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 who am I right. As a cis straight man to come into this situation and argue with these people who have lived experience in this, with the situation and tell them that like my, my artistry and my ego and my desire to make this story trumps your feelings, you know? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes my desire does trump your feelings. I mean, it's a case by case basis, oftentimes. But a lot of times, like I had, like in this specific situation, I had to look at myself and say, "Why, why, why, why am I doing this? I don't have to do this," you know. Mm. Um, and, and so I abandoned the project. We moved on, and we did something else. Um, and like sometimes, you know, that's the necessary actions that you know you have to take. Um, because I think there is something to be gained by letting people tell their own stories, right? Like letting people, you know, tackle their own stories, their own identities. You know, you think about it like throughout all of history, cinema history, right? Whether you're Mm -hmm. black, um, Asian, you know, Latinx, you know, queer, trans, Mm -hmm. gay, whatever it may be, you know, a woman, um, even if you've been in movies, even if you've been in front of the camera, these people have never actually been able to tell their own stories, right? Mm. And so they've been they've been projecting what others want them to be or want, want to say about them. And there's something to be said by letting, you know, um, for example, like letting a trans person write and direct trans stories, right? Um, or letting a black person like write and direct black stories. Like there's something to be gained for that like for sure. And mm-hmm. I think like, it's funny that you actually brought up stories we tell ourselves because the pitch that I'm trying to, to kind of, what I'm trying to do is, is turn that into an anthology series where every episode, 
you know, like we see a new group of characters and we meet a new walk of life. And I want the team behind that specific episode, the director, the writer, to be from that community, right? Mm. Um, And just like kind of give people chances to actually tell their own stories in in like really quick and interesting ways. So it is a balance. It is a balance because like like I do want to be able to make any story I want, right? But then you also get into the territory where you're like, why does Quentin Tarantino keep using the N-word in all of his movies? (laughs) And, you're right, yeah. and he goes, well, because I want to tell whatever story I want. And you're like, yeah, well, I love your stories, but you don't have to use the N-word in every movie, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it just, you know, it gets into that gray area where it's like, um, it's like I don't know, I think there's two sides of every coin. You just have to be really aware of what you're doing, what you're writing, and if you're in any way, shape, or form harming a community that you do not belong to. I think that's really, really well said. Um, and I can't wait for... Well, I hope that this anthology gets produced because I think it'll be awesome. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah, if anyone listening wants to just give me a couple million dollars, um, (laughs) I'll get it to you right away. (laughs) I only need need probably like 20 grand. I'll just take, I'll pocket the rest. (laughs) For the rent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, that's actually a nice. opportunity to talk about money i think Um, because we have to it's so it's like half of filmmaking isn't it um yeah how how do you go about raising money for even a short film it's so intimidating when you're you're starting out and you see like the budget's 5k what do i do first of all let me say that i have i've worked on Tons of shorts, um, tons of experimental documentary pieces, tons of big features. I don't think I've ever worked on a film at this point in my life that has been under or on budget. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's impossible to even prepare or know or or guess what you're going to end up having to spend money on. Um, I'm definitely not the best person to talk to about raising money. I don't know how to do it. I'm not good at it. But what I can tell you is that um, the last like five or six shorts that I've made, I'll say, have ranged in budget anywhere from two grand to you know fifteen grand. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, you just have to. It's kind of like a three tiered thing for me, or four tiered thing for me. The first thing is like, how much of this am I willing to put up personally, right? which is they tell you as a filmmaker never to put your own money into the project, but it, that's not really, um, you know, if you don't know how to raise, if you don't know how to raise money like me, that's not really good advice. Um, the second thing is, is fundraising, crowd crowdfunding. I haven't done that recently. Luckily I haven't needed to fortunately, but I have had a lot of experience of crowdfunding and that's a whole separate topic that we can talk about, about how to effectively crowdfund. Mm-hmm. Um, the third thing is, is just making connections, man. Like really making connections, keeping those connections going. You never know who's rich, who knows someone who's rich, who's who's rich and looking to looking to throw a couple thousand. Like you just have no idea. And so maintaining connections and kind of keeping feelers out. And the fourth thing is is having a producer that knows how to raise money. <laughs> um, this last short film I shot, which was a while ago now, and this this next the next two short films I'm shooting. Um, you know, I'm, thank God I'm working with producers that know how to raise money, man. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know how they do it, but they know how to raise money. And like I said earlier on, like as a director, if you're a producer, director, you're just a producer. Um, 
and mm-hmm. your whole life gets gets sucked down the drain trying to produce this, trying to find the money, trying to do that. And so when you can find someone that um, that has resources, that has connections, and who is excited to do that, it opens up so much freedom for you to be able to actually be creative and, and, and worry about those creative decisions. Um, and I know that's not really good advice because you can't just like go out into the street and find a, find a producer. Um, but at the same time, like I, the producers that I have met that have helped me fundraise are producers that I've met through my connections, through putting my feelers out, through, through maintaining my relationships, you know? Um, and so all these things kind of work in tandem, I think. And you have to, you can't just do one or two. You're going to kind of keep them all going at all times. Mm-hmm. Totally. I, so many points there, which for anyone going into to film, whether you're a producer or a director, listen up. <laughs> because <laughs> this is definitely the biggest cause of stress, I think, yeah. um, in filmmaking is where, where, to, where to get the funds from. And I've had, I've had, and I'm sure you have had too, like I've had a lot of shorts that I've shot and I got to post-production and I was so close to finishing and I ran out of money. Mm-hmm. And that was just it. There was no like, there's no way for me, you know, at the time at least, there was no way for me to get two grand, three grand here and finish it. Like that was it. And so I was submitting short films that had bomb, bomb cinematography, great performances, good writing, great original music, but I couldn't afford a colorist and a sound and a sound mixer, you know, and it's like, and then so people watching, they're like, instead of being like the cinematography is great or the writing is phenomenal, the music is so good. The first thing they say is the mixing is pretty bad, you know? Uh, yeah. And you're like, well, you're like, well, damn it. And so, you know, <laughs> and it's like, well, I spent, you know, six months on this. What the heck? So, um, so yeah, I don't know, man. It's like, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. And, um, you know, and I, I oftentimes like because of lack of funds, I could not finish my films the way I wanted to. Mm. Um, but to be fair, those movies um, enabled me to eventually, again, get into programs and meet people who who like them and who could get me that extra three grand when I needed it or who could, you know, who, who could find like camera packages for me for free, you mm-hmm. know. So um, the point is, you, even if it's not going the way you want, you just got to keep plug, keep plugging, keep grinding, and, and hopefully it will lead you to that person, to that place, to that connection that's going to get you, make your films elevated. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit um, about those programs. What if what programs have you been part of, or you've seen others being part of that help you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are so many different um, so many different labs happening right now. I mean, you know, most big 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 film festivals have some really good directing, writing, producing labs, um, and. Um, and on top of that, I know, especially as we're moving into this, the, like the age, of diver- the age of diversity, pretty much every major studio from from Fox to Disney, um, Viacom, all these all these companies are creating these really dope um, diversity programs. Um, and a lot of them aren't diversity too. A lot of them are just regular programs for anyone who wants to be a film or TV director. Mm-hmm. Um, but giving them opportunities to like come in, meet people, pitch on ideas, yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a resource for me that I've that's been really helpful is Film Independent. I've been a member for a couple of years now, and I've gone to many of the events. And I and they they have tons and tons of of programs. And I actually for the first time finally applied to one and got in. So I've been doing that for like the last couple of months. Um, and so, yeah, like, and for me, like, 
who knows what, where any of these programs lead, you know, like, I don't know what the success rate of Sundance Lab is, but the point of it necessarily isn't to make your masterpiece in the lab or in the, in the program. The point of it is to make connections at Sundance or at Fox or at Film Independent yeah. so that when you, when you need to raise more money or you do have a feature film and you need a little bit of help distributing it or getting into film festivals, that you have these people in your corner, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and also just gives you an excuse to direct and write. Like, I feel like in L.A. I meet so many people who want to be writers, who want to be directors. A lot of people who are directors, who are writers, and they just don't want to put in the time. Mm. And for me, it's like, you know, I'm, you know, I mean, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, here's, you know, have, you know, here's a couple hundred dollars to write a script. Like, I'm going to write that motherfucker. You know, sorry, I'm going to write it. Um, like, if, you know, like, for me, I just I just feel like so many writers don't actually like to write and so many directors don't actually like to direct. And I just feel like, obviously, there's going to be reasons why you might say no and uh, all that stuff. But for the most part, like, I feel like if someone's giving you opportunity to direct, you just got to jump on it. You know what I mean? You got to do it. Absolutely. Um, and, like, I know, I know situations in which, like, you know, Someone has, you know, I've had times in my life where someone came up to me and was like, hey, um, do you have a short film you want to make? And I would say yes. And they go, here's eight grand. And I'm like, great. I'll make, I'm making it next week. Like, here we go. Mm. And I've seen that same situation happen where someone comes up to someone and goes, here's a couple grand. You want to make, you want to make a film? And they go, yeah, I do. And then they just never make it. And I'm like, mm. I don't understand how you could just be offered money to make your own film and you never make it. Yeah. You know? Totally. Because there's so you I know. mean, there's so many even if it's not exactly your story or whatever, I and mean, there's so many points along the way where you can get to be creative and you get to exactly get to express, exactly. express and explore your voice. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to take those opportunities when they come for sure. Yeah. You know, I just think like, this is a really, like I said earlier, a hard and stressful place and, and it's so easy to give into your fears and insecurities. And, and Lord knows that I'm guilty of that um, as much as anyone else. But you know, this isn't about talent. It's not about, you know, it's not about, it's not even necessarily about work ethic necessarily. It's not about, um, it's just, it's just literally about desire, passion, right? Like how, how much do you want this? Like how much do you want to do this? Um, Mm -hmm. and that's what it comes down to, man. I feel like most people that, that I've seen or that I know about that came to LA to make films and then quit, it's, they, they clearly were not passionate about this, right? They clearly did not desire this hard enough. Mm-hmm. Um, deeply enough, and that's so. So for me, my thing is like you know, I, if you really, really are about this life, if you really, really have this desire, like you're gonna take all the opportunities you can get. I want to pick up on something that we kind of skimmed over a little bit earlier. Festivals, mm. they're such a big part of indie movie making, um, and. It, and they have, I mean, they play a massive role in the cultural consumption of films. Whether you know, if, the, yeah. if it has a Sundance laurel on it, you're probably going to watch it. But they're also marketplaces. Can you talk about what your relationship with festivals is? Yeah, it's an incredibly toxic relationship. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very abusive relationship. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, First of all, film festivals, attending film festivals, there's very few things I love more than going to a film festival. Um, it's so much fun. 
someone like me who watches four or 500 movies a year, like just to be able to go and, and watch with people and keep watching, like it's a great, great feeling. Um, and especially when you're in a film festival, like you have a movie playing there, it is a really cool feeling to feel like, you know, you're a part of this program and people are there to watch your movie. And that's a feeling that can't really be duplicated. Um, but for someone like me specifically, and I think this can be applicable to most filmmakers who are at my level or above me or below me. Um, I'm broke as hell, man. I'm really broke as hell. Mm. And film festivals are so incredibly expensive to submit to. Um, And you might think like, oh, $60, $70, $90 for one film festival. That's not bad. But it's bad when you realize that, A, your chances of getting in are incredibly small. So you're basically throwing that money away. And B... Like, in order for your film to, like, really make a splash and to put all those laurels on there, you have to submit to so many film festivals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're lucky, if you're really lucky, you'll probably get into a third of your festivals, right? And that's and, and that's so much money. And so if you're trying to fill your poster or your Vimeo with those laurels, like, it's just, it's, it's, you're spending so much, so much money, so much cash. And the worst part about it is they send you, when, when they reject you, they send you this really... Um, stupid asinine copy and paste like <laughs> letter where they say like, "Hey, we you know we lo- we loved your film so much. Don't be discouraged. We had a record year, a record amount of films this year <laughs> that 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 were sent over to us. So please don't be discouraged." And I think they're trying to like make you feel better because there was more than ever, but it just makes you feel worse because you feel like every year there are more and more films being submitted and every year I'm not getting in. So that must mean that I'm just a shitty director, right? That just must mean that like, (laughs) like there's just going to be more and more people that are better than me. Um, And so it's really frustrating, but you keep submitting, you keep paying for it because, because of the dopamine rush of actually getting into a festival and how good it feels. And because like you said, these festivals are tastemakers. And so you want them to, you know, want to use their laurels and you want people to know and you want people to come out and see and you want the cast to be able to go and so it's this really really messed up relationship and they really have figured out how to essentially scam and like and like milk milk filmmakers i mean there's absolutely no reason why submissions to sundance for example needs to be 90 dollars or however much it is there's no real reason <laughs> i'm sure they have some reasons there's no real reason right Totally. Um, well, I, I guess the, I guess their reasoning is that it is it funds their development programs like the labs and stuff. No, absolutely. But you know what really funds the development programs? Those two thousand dollar packages that people buy, like that sell out in the first day when they go to to Sundance. True. Like let's let's be real. Like ninety percent of Sundance's income probably comes from incredibly rich people, including Hollywood folk and including you know, actors and, and, and just rich people in general coming to Park City, right, to spend tons and tons of money on films, on unreleased films, on these events, on these drinks, on all these things, right? They they charge you know, in addition to your package, they charge like at least twenty to forty dollars to go see other additional movies, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so like you know, they're like they're charging rich people money, and that's probably where all their money is coming from. So why is it that like people like me who can barely afford rent have to decide like, am I gonna buy? Am I gonna buy you know groceries for the next two weeks, or am I gonna put all this money towards Sundance? You know, I hear you, man. It's such a 
frustrating bind that we get put in as filmmakers because there's also no reason why we need festivals need to be the tastemakers. You know, festivals should be a place of celebration and festivity of this wonderful thing we have called film rather than this gateway for um, distribution companies to to buy the films. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm not mad if that happens because that's how a lot of people get noticed, obviously, and that's how a lot of careers get jump-started. But I do think in many ways you lose sight of of what these things are actually about. And I remember, I know you've been to Sundance a couple of times, right? I have. Well, I've only been once and you were there when I went. And one of the things that stuck out to me the most is um, I spent my days, I watched four to five movies a day. And then, you know, in between we would go to these amazing restaurants. We would go in the jacuzzi. We would hang out in the snow. And (laughs) what blew me away is how much people were, people come to Sundance and don't watch a single movie. They just go to the parties. They go to yeah. the industry parties, and you start to realize that this is not a this is not about watching movies necessarily. This is not about enjoying films and going to restaurants and meeting strangers and talking about movies. It's about it's about Hollywood, right? It's about it's about development, you know, development. It's about just distribution deals, and um, mm. I think a lot of that magic gets lost, right? A lot of it gets lost. Totally, but. What what I will say, and I think this is will be a good soundbite for uh, for this podcast, is that I don't think I'm ever going to pay money on on um, festival submission fees ever again. Mm. And let me tell you why. Um, after I've, for the last six or seven years, that's all I've been doing: spending massive amounts of money on festival submissions, budgeting money for festival submissions. Um, I recently had a short film that got into a, a pretty dope festival and the short film had a relatively big actor in the film as the lead. And after I got into that one festival, I had about three to four relatively big festivals reach out to me directly, um, asking for a link to my film so that they could review it and potentially screen it at their festivals. Right. Mm. Some of these festivals were really like one, one of these festivals was really small, but the rest were, were relatively big and this is a fest- these are festivals that you would probably spend 60 to $90 on submitting, right? And here they are saying, like, just send us a link, right? We'll just, we'll just review it. And a couple of them are like, we actually are going to screen your film. And a couple of them are like, no, just send us a link so that we can review it. And a week ago, I would have thought you would have had to drop $100 to get them that link, right? Mm-hmm. And now I'm realizing that, like, that's, that's just not the case. And so what I've been doing as of late is like really, really like learning about who is actually programming these festivals. Who do I know that is programming these festivals? Who do I know that knows people that's programming these festivals? And I'll just get to, I'm, I'm just going to send to them directly, right? Yeah. I'm going to send to them directly and, and build reports to them directly because most of the time it doesn't even feel like somebody is watching your films, Right most of the time it feels like you submit these things, you pay all this money, you do these cover letters, you put all this time and energy into a press kit, into getting the right photos, into photoshopping a poster. And then I had this huge festival just say, just send me the link, uh, right? Yeah. Um, and it really shows you, it really was disheartening and, and depressing and it shows you how much time I wasted on doing these things that probably do not matter. Um, and so, mm-hmm. it, but I'm also grateful for that happening because it is completely reframing the way I'm approaching film festivals from this from this point on. Um, and I've be, I've I've befriended people who 
who either know people who program for big festivals or who, who I feel like are really good at kind of weaseling their way into those circles who can help me. So I feel like at this point, I don't think I'm going to be spending money on film festival submissions at all anymore. Totally. I, mean, I think there's also, I mean, the the whole the whole point of festivals, I guess, from the marketing perspective is to build this pedigree for a film yeah. that helps an audience identify its quality and its style. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's always necessary. You know, I don't think it, yeah. I, I think if a film is on Netflix, if you're able to get to Netflix or any one of these premium platforms and show them a good film and they take it, I don't think people really care uh, when they're browsing the library that your film has yeah. a moral or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the other thing too, is that like, I feel like we, I feel like um, Netflix and Hulu and, and Disney Plus are showing us, are like really, sh- really illustrating to, um, to like LA and Hollywood and filmmakers in general across the world, like who, what the true audience is, right? Because mm. when you're in, L- in LA, like, you know, it's Oscar season and you're like, oh, this movie and that movie and, <laughs> and this and that, and everything is about film. And then when you drive two hours outside of LA, you know, or you basically go to any other state in this country, you realize people don't know anything about films and they don't care, right? They just want to be entertained mm. and they just want to be caught up with the zeitgeist and they want to see what's on. Like they want to come home from work, put on Netflix and go, oh, what's this? Okay, I'll watch that, sure, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is showing us that like we, we've we kind of crafted this like false na- narrative about who our audience is and what they care about and what's important and what's not important and most people in this country don't care about movies. <laughs> they really don't, you know. Yeah. I saw some. I saw a study before the pandemic that the average American citizen went to um, saw five movies a year in theaters, wow. right? Um, which is like less than you know, you know, that's one every two months, less than that, right? Um, and so. You know, and then I'm trying to remember the actual number of movies, but I think the average number of movies that people watch yearly hovers between like 20 and 40, right? Mm. Um, That's in, in America specifically, yeah, I think it, I think it was like 32 or something like that. Um, at least a study that I read, and you think about like. That's, you know, that is like that's that's who our audience is, right? Like when you're making movies, right? Who's gonna watch this? The, you know, it's the people that only watch 30 movies a year. <laughs> and like, so you gotta, you gotta make a movie that you feel like is gonna fit into that 30. And that's why we, that's why we've lost the mid range, uh, you know, the mid budget movie. Mm. That's why we only have micro budget horrors and, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies and Fast and Furious movies <laughs> with ballooned budgets is because people are trying to guarantee that, you know, this is gonna be one of the 30 movies that you see every year, you know? Mm. That's um, very astute. Uh, yeah. I really hadn't thought of that's really good to hear. Um, yeah. Damn, yeah, it's if I, it's this 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 whole meta thing going on for me during this conversation of um, how this affects my thinking about uh, my own film, <laughs> Killer Whales. Well, yeah, and that's the that's the problem that we often deal with, especially as creatives, is that majority of the time you and I are not making movies that are going to fit into that 30 movie a year right. category. Right. Um, and that's the struggle. If, I mean, if we were, then we, we would have had our movies funded a long time ago, you know? <laughs> um, 
And so it's this thing where it's like, as artists, we, we, we operate in this very weird niche situation, niche situation where we have to essentially, um, we're making films like we're, we're the kind of films we're making for, we're making from a, for a much smaller audience. Right. Um, the audience has a big voice, like a big critical voice, but it's a very small audience. And, um, and so because there's a small audience, there's not a lot of money in it because there's not a lot of money in it. It's very hard to make it. Um, but that's the life we've chosen. <laughs> <laughs> the burden. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. Well, um, I want to ask you one last question, I guess, just to, um, to, to keep things positive. Um, it's a t- really difficult time to be a filmmaker at the moment, um, particularly in the U.S. Uh, with the, the COVID situation. Where do you see yourself going in 2021? Man, man, man. Um, I really don't know. There's so much up in the air right now, um, both personally and globally. Um, So I really don't know. I think that, you know, all I can really focus on is like what's in front of me. Um, And at this moment in time, you know, I have a feature film that I'm slowly shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a uh, short film that's supposed to be going up in October. And then I have another short film that I'm supposed to be shooting uh, in, in the new year. And that's all I can really control. So that's what I'm going to focus on, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like I had a lot of really good things going. And there was a lot of opportunities opening up for me right before COVID happened. Um and so I'm hoping at some point to kind of get back to those opportunities. But, you know, you know as well as I do that you just can't wait. You can't wait for opportunities to come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, my, my whole thing is I'm just going to uh, just keep doing what I can do, try to find a way to make money through all of this. Um, and hopefully something will come from, from all this hard work, you know. Um, but at the very least, I'll have some some new shorts and a feature to, to uh, you know, to show people out of all this. Um, so yeah. Well, not to end it on too sobering a note. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I'm going to quit. I think I'm done filming. Yeah, I think after this conversation, <laughs> we've aired all our grievances and we can give it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Deontay. Um, I really feel like I learned a lot and um, I'm sure that anyone who's listening uh, had a great time uh so thanks man yeah thank you that means a lot to me and, and anyone who's listening i just want you to know that if i can do it you can do it too okay <laughs> and uh i also want you to know that i was not kidding about accepting millions of dollars if you want to send me money <laughs> for any of my film projects you can be my, uh, you know, you can be my uh, sugar daddy or sugar mama. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much, man. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll put that link in the outro. <laughs> <laughs> and if that's whetted your appetite, you can find out more about Deontay's work at DeontaySingly.com or by scrolling on by his Instagram at DeontaySingly and at DownpourSummerFilms. If you're more spark notes than the long read, you can even go to our Instagram at show, where you'll find bite-sized clips of Deontay's work. Of course, all those links can be found in the episode's description. 
In Process is produced independently by myself, Will Hamilton, with music by Freddie Avis. That's it for today's episode. Keep on paddling, folks. We'll see you next time.